Greetings and welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I am Thad Forrester and you are listening to episode number 25. So thank you for being with me again this week. Before we get into talking with Blaine, I would like to just ask you to please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. I know it's not really convenient or super easy to do, at least to me, but if you tap on that artwork or something like that, you can um, rate it, maybe some five stars, or you can write a review, which is preferred, just to get the word out there and for it to be so it will be easier to find. Uh, also, upcoming uh, interviews, I've got one with former SEAL Kyle D. Ford, who is a friend of mine, and uh, we're from the same town, and he is actually a Team Six guy, and so he's very private. So. We, we won't talk about all that probably, but uh, we'll just speak in generalities about his time in Afghanistan. But he also was a sniper uh, in the Navy, so he's a very uh, he's a very cool guy, and he's accomplished a lot in his in his life. And now he's uh, he's a firearms instructor, so uh, looking forward to that. That'll be coming up in a few weeks. Uh, but now with uh, Mr. Blaine Smith, he's the executive director of Team RWB, and Blaine graduated from the West Point Academy. Uh, he actually. Uh, Played golf in college as well, but he deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, came home and had some struggles. Uh, I think some, some some big struggles, but he talks candidly about that, and um, you know, also what he did to overcome that. I mean, he had to put himself out there. He had to go out and meet new people. He had to get involved in the community a little bit. He exercised, and then he joined uh, Team RWB, which kind of saved his life. So that's why I think he's passionate about it and why he's a uh, that's where he works now full time, but he is—he's really a—he's a servant, and he—he uh, he, he discusses maybe some leadership tactics on the battlefield that can also be applied to any leadership position. But we have a great talk, and uh, you, the good news is too—is you're going to love his voice a lot more than mine. That's a good thing he does most of the speaking. So let's get Blaine in here. Blaine, great to have you joining Patriots of the Core podcast. Thank you for making time to be with me this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Thad. Uh, you you seem to spend a lot of time talking with other people and interviewing a lot of other people. So um, I hope I hope this is one of those maybe a rare chance where you don't get to talk about yourself a whole lot, and because uh, I'd love to find out about you. Um, you know, one thing is you are a West Point grad, and I just want to ask you about that and what you studied, and, and I think you're a collegiate athlete, and you know what sport you played in college. Sure. So, yeah, I did go to West Point. I started in 1997, and I graduated in 2001, which is a shockingly long time ago. Um, I don't even like thinking about it. It's been so long. But uh, it was a great it was a great four years. It was a certainly a formative period in my life. But the the best thing that I got from West Point, amongst the many things, was the the network of friends and people that I met there. You know, some of my best friends to this day are are guys and people that I went to school with, and then later served in the army with. And it was just it really is the people that make that place great, and I feel very privileged to have been among them because I was certainly not the smartest or the most gifted athlete, but uh, very proud to, to know some of those people and to have served with them. I, uh, I studied, I, I majored in economics, which um, they used to say at, at West Point that electrical engineering, EE, it stood for eventually economics, and uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of my, my story. I went there, I thought I'd be an engineer. At some point, I looked at the engineering curriculum and thought maybe it was a little more than I wanted to, to bite off. Um, but I, in all seriousness, I, I studied econ, and I, I really loved it. It taught me a lot about how the world works. Um, and I still use all that stuff today, so I, I liked it a lot, actually. And um, I played golf. So you said I was a collegiate athlete, and I, I will use that term loosely. I, <laughs> I like to think I'm, I'm a decent athlete, but uh, I actually played golf in college, and Played on the team for four years and got to do a ton of cool stuff, actually, on the golf team and, and travel to a lot of great places. So very, uh, very happy to have had that experience also. Well, I, I've always said that anyone who plays a sport in college, especially, a you know, a, a D1 college, I mean, that's that's very impressive, no matter what the sport is. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's time consuming, I think, which is one of the things that was both a blessing and a curse is that. You know, even playing golf, even in the Northeast, it, it is, it's reasonably serious and it takes quite a lot of your time, which you maybe could be, you know, studying or doing other things. But I feel like it really helped to keep me focused and it also gave me a nice outlet because your first couple of years at West Point are not a whole lot of fun. And being on the golf team was, was pretty awesome because it got me, you know, off base and a chance to wear civilian clothes mm -hmm. and 
hang out with other college kids from time to time, and it was really, it was it was pretty cool actually. So, what is a day like in the life of a an athlete at West Point? Because I know it's got to be different than an athlete at any other school. It probably is. I mean, I only have my experience to compare, but uh, you know, a day at West Point starts pretty early in the morning. So, I think when I was there, we had morning formation that everybody had to attend at you know six thirty or six fifty or something like that in the morning, and then. We would all march to the uh, the mess hall and have breakfast together at like you know 6:45 in the morning, and then I think our first class started at like 7:15 or 7:20, and there were four class periods before lunch. Uh, you might have three of the four, let's say, and then we would all eat lunch together every day until 12:30 or so, and then there were a couple of class periods after lunch, and so. A lot of the athletes really have most of their classes in the morning, and they may only have one. Uh, after lunch and then starting at about 3 p.m most of the the club and the uh, varsity athletes will go off to practice if they're in season and so that might mean you know practice from three to five three to 5 30 we were out at the golf course most days you know three to six or 6 30 and would uh, either have a box lunch on our way back or we'd get back in time to grab some lunch at the mess hall or not lunch a dinner and um you know, maybe hit the gym, lift some weights, and then by about 7.30, it was evening study period. And so really, most cadets between 7.30 and 11.30 are just working on their homework, writing papers, studying, and then uh, tap sounds at 11.30, and it's it's off to bed if you're lucky. <laughs> well, I didn't attend a service academy, but I definitely do not want to go back and relive college again. It was a good time. Well, once but, was enough. Yeah, once was enough, though. Well, let's, so let's talk about now your military career. I know you – actually, I, I'm not sure what you did when you got out of college, but at some point you transitioned, you went into uh, SF. So do you mind talking about that, maybe what you did at first, and then how you, why you even chose uh, Special Forces? Yeah, definitely. So I commissioned an armor officer well, right out of West Point, and I went to the armor officer basic course at Fort Knox in the summer of 2001. And I, I really, I graduated from West Point thinking my military career was going to be one thing because it w- had been kind of the Clinton army, uh, Bosnia and Kosovo were going on, but really not much else. The world was, seemed relatively calm and the military was shrinking for the most part. And I didn't really think that my military experience was going to be particularly eventful. I, I'd planned on serving, uh, you know, my minimum obligation and then, and then moving on. But then w- when I was at the basic course, uh, September 11th, 2001 happened, and really everything changed from there. So I went from there to Fort Hood, Texas. I became a tank platoon leader in the 1st Cavalry Division. And uh, by then, Afghanistan was starting to kick off. And, you know, you would see the news, and uh, I knew that my tank platoon was n- not going to go to Afghanistan. There was just no way to even get a tank there, um, much less navigate the terrain. And you'd see on CNN these these Special Forces guys you know, in there riding horses, dropping bombs on the Taliban, you know, with beards and doing all this cool stuff. And I thought, man, those those are the guys that are going after the Taliban, bin Laden. And it, it was really kind of a romantic notion, to be honest, for a young man. Um, but then in 2004, I was by then I was a scout platoon leader in the brigade reconnaissance team, which was, you know, uh, more light kind of reconnaissance work. So I'd kind of ditched the tank at that point for a rucksack and a Humvee. And I really, really liked that job. And we went over to uh, an area kind of between Baghdad and Fallujah in 2004 uh, and did a a ton of what I think was really good work. And I really loved the mission. I loved my guys um, and had a a very um, pretty eventful, but a relatively, I guess, positive experience during that deployment. And, and part of that deployment was us working closely with a couple of ODAs from 5th Special Forces Group. And so by now, I had kind of had this idea of getting into SF percolating for a couple of years. And then I got a chance to work alongside some SF guys in Baghdad in 2004, and they were just incredibly impressive. Um, they really blew me away, their professionalism, their maturity, um, their capabilities. And I, I just I really loved it. And I thought, this this is what I really want to do. And so uh, I got orders to go to Special Forces Selection while I was still over uh, in Baghdad. And then I got home uh, from that deployment to Iraq and went to Special Forces Selection the next month. 
and was able to to get through the 24 days, got selected to go to the Q course, and then kind of the wheels were in motion from there. So how many deployments did you have as a, you know, as a Green Beret? Just one. I did one to Iraq in the conventional army and then one to Afghanistan uh, on an SF team. Okay. So, so what, what was it like? Uh, how, what was the comparison or, or the differences as an SF commander versus before you went into SF on deployment? Yeah, it's a little tricky because the areas we were operating in were just so different. So you can attribute a lot of the difference to the fact that, you know, one was 2004 Baghdad. You know, the IED threat was just emerging. Um, you know, the, the Battle of Fallujah was in 2004. The Shia uprising was in 2004. So it was kind of this urban, mm. you know, Iraq is a relatively developed place, believe it or not. I mean, they have interstate highways and, like, on-ramps and universities and things like that. Um Whereas my experience in Afghanistan, we got sent to a fire base that was really in the middle of nowhere, uh, about 90 kilometers from the nearest friendly position, no roads there. We kind of flew in on helicopters, and it was extremely you know, remote and rural, uh, a very, very different type of mission. And so that the environment was a lot different. Some things were similar in that when I was over in Iraq, I was a scout platoon leader. And being in the brigade recon team, we actually were given a lot of autonomy and spent a lot of time out there in small units, um, working pretty closely with the local population, doing a lot of kind of a counter um, rocket and IED and mortar interdiction and stuff. It was really um, a, a pretty cool mission. And so uh, my transition to SF wasn't a, a huge shift in that I'd had a little bit of experience in working on a small team. And, and doing that type of stuff, but uh, eventually it became very different in that uh, we had one of my teammates killed um, about a month into our deployment. He was shot by a sniper um, on a mission, uh, and then about about a week later, um, four other people on my team were killed in a, in a big ID explosion on a mission, and you know that that obviously is a, a pretty big. Uh, event and extremely traumatic for the team and uh, you know changed the whole deployment we ended up resetting getting some guys to backfill the team we got sent to another firebase uh, and kind of regenerated some combat power and got back out in the fight for another like five months um, but that was a much more difficult uh, deployment than the first one for the obvious reasons mm-hmm. um, but even just the nature of the conflict had gotten so different because, um, you know, in Iraq, with with all due respect to the enemy, at that point it was mostly kind of like hit and run tactics. You know, an ID would go off and maybe you'd receive a few shots, and then, you know, they would just try to blend into the population, and and uh, it was frustrating because you couldn't just like shoot back at the enemy. You'd rarely ever even see them. Um, so you were in urban environments a lot in Iraq. Is that right? Yeah, largely, not not solely, but but to a large extent. And then, okay. you know, in Afghanistan, you're fighting the, the Taliban, who were, you know, they were hardened fighters. I mean, we respected their ability as as uh, opponents on the battlefield. I mean, they understood basic infantry tactics. They would stay and fight, um, and they would get you in a complex ambush. And uh, it was it was just a very different experience than. What we'd seen in Iraq, where we were just like, let's just drive fast, use speed and spacing. If something blows up, you know, scan your lane and, and radio in your status, and like, let's keep moving if we can, because, you know, we're not going to be able to engage whoever it is in this big crowd of people in the city. Um, you know, whereas in Afghanistan, you're walking around the mountains and uh, or driving a truck down a narrow mountain pass, and uh, it's very, very different. So I'd like to talk about that. How you, as a manager, it sounds well. It sounds like even as a as a scout platoon leader, you were still managing other soldiers. And is that right? And then, and then so you were also managing as a as a commander. Yeah, absolutely. So I had, I had nineteen soldiers in my scout platoon, and six we had six trucks, kind of six truck crews that we sent out uh, on missions, and we'd break up into a, a two truck section or a three truck section. And, uh, and spread out kind of throughout the battle space doing surveillance and reconnaissance. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a great deal different, like I said, in terms of, you know, leading soldiers, uh, planning missions, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
So, so what did you do when? Uh, well, let's take the instance where you had some you had some guys on your team killed, and uh, how did you, as a leader, as the, or as the commander, or as the scout platoon leader, either one, how do you you know help your guys overcome that and keep focused and I guess because you've got to take care of them and yourself. How did you do it? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, and I don't know that I did a great job, but I, I think what I tried to focus on was really rallying around the team as a family. And, um, you know, I'm not going to say that I didn't care about the unit or I didn't care about the mission. I, mean, I certainly did. But in the immediate, you know, aftermath, it was really all about, you know, getting our arms around each other and, and saying, hey, this, the most important thing is each other right now. And what do we need to do to make sure that we're good so that we can continue on? Because the mission's going to be there, and we're going to have to focus on the mission. Um, but let's let's you know band together, and, and that was really important uh, that we spent some time together. We had a little bit of downtime that was afforded to us, and we just um, we just grew really close as a team and as a family. And then from that point forward, it became let's figure out how we can get refocused on the mission. And get back out there in ways that are going to allow us to build some confidence and be effective. And so that was that part was hard. We didn't always do a great job of it, but what we started to do was get back out there in ways that were, um, you know, for example, we, we got out on helicopters a few times. Whereas, um, you know, our guys on our team had been killed within a big IED explosion riding in a truck, and so there's some apprehension around getting back out there driving down these dirt roads on Humvees. Um, and so, you know, our command, to their credit, got us on some missions where we uh, got together with some other teams and uh, a SEAL platoon that we were working with, and we got on helicopters and we flew onto objectives and uh, and did some missions that way. And that kind of got guys back in the saddle. Um, it certainly built my confidence as a leader and, and got us to, to where we started to feel more, kind of more stable and, and engaged. Okay. Yeah. You know, I've tried to put myself in, in your shoes and guys like your shoes and I mean, there's no way I can, but you know, I've thought about what really, how do you do that when you, you see when your teammates get killed, you see many get killed or injured and you have a mission to accomplish still and you've got to, you've got to carry on and they're, and they're, they'll, you know, they'll, I guess, be backfield their position and it's got to be tough as, as anyone, especially as a leader to keep going. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the duality that really makes being a, a soldier and then eventually a veteran so challenging is that in that moment, you have to sort of, you don't really have an opportunity to to grieve properly or to register all these things. You just kind of have to stuff it and save it for later because you have a mission. You're still a soldier. You've got to do um, what's required of you. And that's good. The, I mean, the Army had prepared us well to be able to do that. Um the challenge then comes when you get home and you haven't really processed this stuff. You haven't really had an opportunity to work through it. Um, and now, you know, everything's supposed to be great. You're home. You're supposed to be happy. You don't really then want to, like, stop and say, well, hang on, I need to take some time to, to grieve and be sad, right? <laughs> yeah. But but the trick is, if you don't do that, it's going to find its way out. You know, the, the grieving process is going to find you, whether it's a month later or a year later or 10 years later. So at some point, you've got to deal with it. The question is, what is a healthy way to deal with it? When do you deal with it? How do you have the space to do it? And that's that's the hard part. Stuffing it in the moment and, and continuing the mission is hard, but that's easy compared to figuring out how to deal with it and move through it later. Makes sense. Yeah, I want to, and I want to get into that in a few minutes too. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, in 2009, when you were an ODA commander, you, one of your JTACs was killed. And was that Tim Davis? Yeah, Tim Davis was on the truck. Um, he was killed the same day as Jeremy Bessa and Dave Hurt, uh, mm-hmm. as well as uh, Iman Fakhri, who was our uh, our interpreter. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely know the name Tim Davis because he's a combat controller. And um, are you familiar with the the march that they do every or every year that there's a fallen Air Force Special Tactics member? They do that walk from Lackland to Hurlburt, 812 miles. No, and I'm I'm embarrassed to say this, but it, you wrote me in a note about this the other day, and I I was not familiar with it. Um, a couple of guys from the team have uh, well, Tim Davis, in fact, has a CrossFit Hero Wad named after him that has become very popular and has actually been in the CrossFit Games. 
two years in a row, which like just brings a smile to my face. But I was not familiar with this uh, this walk they do. Yeah, we um, they, so they only have it on the years when there is a member of Special Tactics killed, and so it's been several years, uh, you know, several times, unfortunately, since his death. But I, I've known several of my brother's teammates who have taken part in that, and they cover. I forgot how many days it takes them. They have different teams, and they carry a baton for each member of the Air Force Special Operations Community who's who's been killed. And uh, it's a it's a cool thing, and then you know a lot of people meet meet up with them there the last few miles as they arrive at Hurlburt Field, but it's every year in um, October time frame when there's a we have a, a combat control reunion. So yeah, it's it's a pretty awesome thing to keep that going, but it's named after him. Uh, wow, no, that is that is awesome. I gotta I gotta get to that. I mean, I, I hope that never happens again. You know, I hope there's never never yeah. another death in the Special Tactics Squadron, so we don't have to do it again. But in the case that it does happen, I uh, I need to get in on that. Yeah. Well, I'm being curious to ask you too. Is how do you like? In, let's say this may not be every case, Blaine. So you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. But I I can speak from like my brother's experience. So he while he was deployed, he was on about a, a five or six month deployment, assigned deployment, and you know roughly halfway through he got a new ODA team. Um. So from what I think, you know your uh, your JTAC, typical JTAC, and your your teams, you know, they aren't the same timing. So how did you deal with that when you would get a new JTAC to blend in with your team, who y'all been together for, I guess, much longer? That's a great question. Um, so in Tim's case, in, in the case of Tim Davis, we were actually really fortunate because he was there before we got there. And I think he had actually done a rotation there like a year prior as well. So it was awesome having him because – while we weren't familiar with him, we hadn't trained much with him or anything, uh, he he knew, he had a lot of local knowledge and knew what was going on in that area and was experienced and pretty seasoned. And so he was an awesome asset to have as, as a team. So it just only makes sense to really wrap your arms around him and just try to make him as much a part of the team as you can. Um, we had a couple of other uh, JTACs that worked with us on that trip, as well as a, uh, a special... Uh, operations weather guy from the Air Force too, um, and I'll, I'll tell you this was something we took a lot of pride in because um, not every team does it well, frankly. But you have a lot of people when you're when you're an ODA and you're at a fire base downrange, you get uh, you are likely going to have a number of people attached to you, whether they are linguists or intel analysts or like a female nurse or uh, a JTAC, you name it, and it's absolutely critical that you make those people feel every bit as much a part of the team as the guys that are on your ODA that you've been with for two or three years back stateside. And we, we really went out of our way to do that, whether it was just um, getting out on the range and doing some shooting or, uh, you know, get, trying to get our arms around these folks and, and getting them familiar with our radios, weapon systems, those types of things, so that everybody that was out there had the capability of using you know, all the weapons and all the radios, um, you know, if medical training, anything we could do that was team building in nature, we did it. I mean, time in the gym, just getting out and, and running some laps around the airfield or getting a CrossFit workout in. Like, we really, really worked hard to make everybody that was there at our firebase feel like it's, it's just one team. And the guys on the ODA were not special. They were not privileged. I mean, it even comes down to little things like, the guys on the team didn't have any advantages. They didn't get nicer rooms. They didn't get better chow. Like there, there was none of that. Um, and I think that's really, really important because at the end of the day, the, the Taliban doesn't care whether this guy's an Air Force JTAC or he's not on your team or you know yeah. your dog handler is not an SF guy. Like no one cares about that. The enemy certainly doesn't care. And so it's really up to you as the detachment commander to set the conditions for. Your team, meaning everybody out there, to be as cohesive as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds like the, the effective way to do things. So I've been curious about that. I've never really talked to anyone on the SF side about that. Well, what about at the same time when you've got um, maybe guys you've been you've been deployed for several months and they're getting close to going home? Uh, you know. I'm thinking sometimes they may kind of get tired, maybe not feel like going on as many missions. I mean, how do you how do you keep them motivated and focused? 
it's tough. Um, I mean, not to say that guys are hard to keep motivated because for the most part, especially amongst SF guys, like they, they're, they're professional. They understand that there's a mission to be done and they, they're, they're not hard to sort of keep, keep focused. Having said that they're human. And so they have all the same tendencies as the rest of us, you know, toward the end of a deployment. Um, I think the bigger thing, at least I've done two deployments and so it's not a ton, but my experience has, has kind of shown me that com- like complacency or just sort of lack of attention to detail um, or just kind of failure to appreciate some of the, the risks associated with things, uh, that is more problematic than people kind of wanting to shut it down early or not go out on missions as they approach the end of a deployment. Like by that, I mean they've been there so long, they've seen this road or this type of operation so many times that maybe they're just not quite as laser focused on the details as they should be because they're they're confident or, or possibly even overconfident in you know whatever it is they're doing. And so to me, that is the biggest trick: is how do you keep everyone focused as if it's like day one on the ground, and to maintain a certain level of kind of vigilance um, with this stuff and not kind of fall into a rut and feel like you've got it kind of got it figured out because um, you know that's when bad things tend to happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, complacency. I guess that that makes sense. Just human can be human nature. Well, let's talk about unless there's something else you wanted to bring up from you know your time in the military uh, or at least deployed. I'd like to talk about your what it was like when you got home and how you dealt with it, and then talk about some of those struggles that you had and how how long it, had you been home before you know some of the, maybe some emotions started to surface. Yeah, absolutely. So it was really, I mean, in many ways I was very blessed to have, you know, I had um, a family to come home to and a supportive community there at Fort Bragg that was there to help us. You know, they understood what we'd been through, you know, while we were in Afghanistan. But in in many ways it was really just um, the timing of things made it even harder for me personally. So I got home from Afghanistan and about a week later my, my son was born, my second son which was this, you know, amazing gift. He's an incredible kid. I mean, he's still like my best buddy to this day. But, you know, there wasn't, as I said earlier, there wasn't really a window of time to just have some space and process what we'd been through. And I had basically just kind of stuffed it down. And so there were a lot of positive emotions. It was good to be home. It was good to be with a family. You know, it was this, it was good to, you know, have this beautiful baby being born. And then for me, I had already planned on uh, getting out of the army at the end of 2009, kind of beginning of 2010. And so this was my last deployment and it really, it really aided me that I'd had what I would consider to be a pretty good military career up to that point. And then my last deployment, you know, the last thing I really did as a commander had, had really worked out so badly. At least that's the way I felt about it. Um, so now it was only a matter of months and I'm off my team so I've sort of lost this really tight knit group of guys and, and really the whole, all the families and everybody were so close. And now that was gone. Uh, and then I processed out of the army in December and moved to Florida because I got a job. And so there was a lot of new and exciting, positive things happening, new baby, new career, you know, moving, new house, all that, all really good stuff. Um, but it really just uprooted me very quickly from support network that I'd built that I'd had. Um, and still with all of these things yet to be processed. And so over the next couple of years, it started to just sort of slowly and like insidiously <laughs> find its way out, you know, um, cause I just, I didn't really want to deal with it. Nobody does. And so now I've got a new job and I feel like everything is going great. I have no room to complain, but I just felt like hell, honestly. Um, and I couldn't really put my finger on why it, it, it wasn't obvious to me at the time, um, but then this, I got in this kind of vicious cycle where I just sort of didn't feel right, didn't feel good, wasn't happy. Um, and then I would get upset at myself for being unhappy because I'd be like, what do you have to be unhappy about? Like you made it home, you have a family, you have this beautiful house, you have a swimming pool, like what the hell's wrong with you? So then I'd be unhappy about being unhappy and like, there you go. Hmm. There's the shame spiral. And like, it really affected me badly. And I just, to the point where I couldn't really take joy or happiness in really anything. I just gave myself a hard time about everything. Um, 
you know, I really quit doing all the things that made me happy, like mountain biking or, you know, playing golf or I used playing my guitar. I quit doing all of it because I felt like anything I did that was good for me or brought me any joy was kind of selfish, if that makes sense. Hmm. It's, it's a little hard to explain, but I just really, I put myself on this program where I felt like everything I did in my life had to be really meaningful and purposeful because I was so fortunate to have, you know, made it home alive when my teammates didn't. And, uh, that's no way to treat yourself, you know? And, and, and the result sad was that I didn't do anything well because <laughs> I was just a grumpy, miserable mess. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it was not a, not a good look for me for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, eventually was able to kind of kind of work my way through it, but it was it was tough there for a while. When you're going through that, were you did you want someone to talk to? You know, I don't know. I think that it if I had a chance to kind of reconnect with my teammates or other people that kind of sh- had a shared experience, I, I I might have welcomed that opportunity, but I wasn't really eager to kind of just talk about it. And again, to to be fair. I wasn't even really sure what was bothering me. I didn't know if it was like, well, I'm just, you know, it's a new career and I'm not in the army anymore and I'm living in a new city. Like there were a lot of things that changed. And so I didn't necessarily attribute all of it to, man, I'm still like really stinging from my trip to Afghanistan, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I heard you mention one time how, um, you know, oh, this this odd salty discharge started coming from your eyes a lot more more frequently than it ever had before, and at the most odd times. Is that what happened too? Yeah, it was the craziest thing. Like I, you know, I I didn't grow up much of a crier, you know, and then um, I would find myself just like, you know, start my eyeballs would start sweating a little bit, as we like to say, um, at like a commercial or you know a, a movie or. <clears throat> Even like my my son would say something to me that was like, you know, particularly touching, or and I would just like well up, and I was like, wow, um, this is this is weird for me because I'm I'm not I was never super emotional or certainly not a crier. And the other thing that started happening was basically the flip side of that coin, which was I was like more short tempered, like I was just irritable and like things would piss me off. And really, up my whole life up to that point, like I was certainly not perfect, but I was pretty unflappable like i was a pretty calm person um i mean i was uh competitive and you know passionate about things but like i didn't lose my lose my cool over stuff you know mm-hmm. and now i'm like losing my cool over like <laughs> pretty petty things to be honest and i'd and i would notice it like it wasn't going unnoticed to me i would have this like voice inside my head and i'd be like jeez dude come on <laughs> like pull it together why are you, why are you getting so frustrated but then it would happen again, like two days later. And I was like, God dang, what, what is happening here? And it was just, it was so bizarre. I just could not figure out what the heck was going on. Well, I know that, uh, running seemed to save you or maybe at least helped. I'm curious that you know, really, what role running played in helping you and also what else there was that, that helped you to, to heal and deal with maybe some of your, your struggles and emotions. Yeah. So running helped, um, some because I would go out and it was something I could do on my own and I could just, you know, work up a sweat and, and clear my head a little bit. And, it, and certainly, you know, exercise, getting out there and sweating and breathing heavy just helps to sort of get some endorphins going and, and create some positive emotions. And it would definitely relieve some stress and some anxiety. So, you know, working out and running was a kind of a stress reliever for me, but it really was um, when I started getting involved and meeting people in my community in Tampa where I live, that was big for me because I, I had, you know, I, I had really lost confidence. You know, my, my experience in Afghanistan going the way that it did, you know, I thought up to that point I was a pretty good leader, pretty solid dude, you know, um, and only, only a couple of years later, here I am. And I'm just like, man, I was really such a failure during my last deployment. And then I got out of the army and like my, my marriage was falling apart and I got to this point where I was like, I just really didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. And, um, when I got back out in the community a little bit, I, I started going to like a local running club and then I, I signed up for like a co-ed soccer league and I was totally uncomfortable by the way, doing all of this. Like I did not 
feel comfortable just like showing up to these things not knowing anybody. It was not fun at first, but it didn't take long, and I started meeting people. And the the big light bulb for me, Thad, was that people actually liked me. They 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 thought I was a nice guy, and they laughed at my jokes, and they thought I was a good runner, and they were like, "Wow, you're really in good shape." And they would ask me to do things and like go to coffee and go to the beach on the weekend. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, I was, I had been beating myself to death for two or three years. And as it turned out, like I was a decent guy, <laughs> you know? And it, it was, and, and, and not, not to be overlooked in all this, I started going to the VA and I started going every week on Monday mornings at 7am to see the uh, post deployment counselor. And that was awesome. It really, really helped. Um, and I did that for months. And then eventually I started going kind of every other week and I started going once a month. And then I, he, my, you know, my, my counselor finally told me like, Hey, look, you can keep coming, man. I enjoy our talks, but like, you don't have to come if you don't want to. Um, so like the bottom line is I had to take some proactive steps and all of them were uncomfortable at first. Uh, but all of them yielded really positive and pretty quick results. But uh, it was all just a step away, you know, and I just, I wish I had done it sooner, but I'm glad that I did eventually. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know, um, so I'll, I may be skipping something important. If I am, tell me, but you got involved in team red, white, and blue. And so what role did that play in, you know, in your, in helping you out? Yeah, it played a huge role. So my, my friend, Mike Irwin, who founded team RWB, he came down to Tampa one summer while he was in grad school and was doing some work for like a month or six weeks or something. And so he would ask me to come run at, you know, five or five thirty in the morning. And so he and I shared a lot of miles together up and down Bayshore Boulevard in Tampa, um, you know, talking about all sorts of stuff, but you know, uh, the army, our, our trip to Afghanistan, lots of things. And it was great to have a partner to run with and, to, and to share some miles and work up a sweat in the, in the Tampa summer. And, you know, he, he said, hey, we're all running the Twin Cities Marathon to raise some money for this new thing I started called Team RWB. You know, do you want to do it? And I'd never run a marathon. Um, didn't really have a lot of interest, to be honest. But, you know, Mike asked me to do it, and it seemed like just, just the thing I needed to kind of sink my teeth into to have a little bit of purpose in my life. And so we had this big reunion of friends and a bunch of people up in uh, Minneapolis in October of 2010. And... Uh, it was cool to have something to work toward and to be able to do it with a group of other people uh, and to just kind of reconnect with some of my buddies from the Army and, and fellow veterans and some of my West Point classmates. Um, and so, yeah, then I did the I did the Marine Corps Marathon the next year and the JFK 50-miler, and I just really, I really latched on to this kind of being part of a team and running with a purpose in mind. It, it did a ton for me. Did running come pretty easily to you? Sounds like you, I mean, it's like a, a strength of yours, it sounds like. Yeah, I don't know if it came came easily, but I, I mean, I played soccer growing up. I always ran growing up. I, you know, went to West Point at 18. So running had just been a part of my my life, my, my whole life, really. And so I'm, I'm a decent runner. You know, it's one of the things I've, I've kind of always done through thick and thin. Like I've, you know, I've always found time just to at least you know, go get a couple of runs in a week at least, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's something you can do where it's just you, whether you choose to listen to music or, or listen to a podcast or just listen to nothing, but your surroundings, it is something where you can just spend some alone time. And I, I don't do it much. My wife does. And so I hear that from her anyway, but it makes sense. Uh, so now you are executive director of Team Red, White, and Blue. So will you explain wh- I mean, what they do? Because I know you're involved in the community quite a bit and then also in veterans outreach. So what is the purpose of Team RWB? So Team Red, White, and Blue's mission is to enrich the lives of veterans by connecting them to their community through physical and social activity. So all the things I just described to you that were huge for me and in my post-military life that I wish I had had sooner, that's basically what we're trying to do with Team RWB. We've got a chapter model. So we're in over 200 cities now across the country, um, about 120,000 members. And our local chapters facilitate, they set up and run 
multiple opportunities every week for veterans and their families and members of their community to get together and do something positive. And it might be a, a running group one day. It might be a free CrossFit class one day. It might be a yoga class. might be a volunteer opportunity. But the role of the Team Red, White, and Blue chapter is to help these veterans and their families connect with other members of their community through some sort of shared common ground. And we found that that's much, much easier to help people build relationships and to integrate into their communities than through a more forced or a more contrived way, like a seminar or a workshop or something. Not that those are bad, but you know the numbers are kind of speaking for themselves at this point. Um, coming out and, and going for a run with your fellow veterans and people in your community is an easy way to just show up. You don't have to talk about your deployment. You don't have to identify yourself as being wounded or in need or anything. You can just come be a part of the team. And that's really powerful. When you take that military uniform off for the last time, one of the best things you can do is find another uniform to wear. And if it's police or fire or something, that's great. But if it's a red, team red, white, and blue shirt, you know, we hope that gives people that sense of purpose and that sense of team again. And just knowing that there are other people in the community that they can turn to. And so it's really a pretty simple model. I mean, we've, we've built a pretty big leadership development program off to the side of the chapter program, which generates like a ton of goodness so that all these volunteer leaders can actually lead, you know, at the local level and, and do the good work. But at its core, it's, it's, it's just as simple as getting people together to do positive things, you know, a handshake, a high five. And from there, a lot of really positive things start to happen. Yeah. Your logo is really awesome. I mean, it's very iconic. I mean, I was looking at um, some information on the Marine Corps Marathon in DC and I was looking up one, uh, some information on the uh, Air Force Marathon up in Dayton, Ohio. And both of them, with just looking at just a few pictures, there's at least one person with a team red, white, blue shirt on. I mean, it's, yeah, they're everywhere. Man. They're everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. That's the best part though, is, and we call this the community of communities, which is, you know, you're a part of your, your local team red, white, and blue community. But what's even better is if you have to go out of town on work or on vacation, or let's say you're going to DC to run the Marine Corps marathon, guaranteed family built in for you when you get there. So you have a place to go for a pasta dinner. You have people out on the course that you're going to see and be able to high five and give encouragement and people along the sidelines, you know, cheering for you and clapping you and saying, Hey, team RWB. I mean, knowing that as a member of the team, you can throw on that red shirt and like even just walking through the airport, you're mm-hmm. going to see somebody that yeah. says, hey, cool, love the Eagle, you know, Team RWB, what chapter are you from? And that that is a really powerful thing. And uh, I, I don't think we should underestimate the importance of that. Yeah. Well, how, how have you gotten it to grow so fast? Uh, well, it, I guess it, it probably feels fast on the outside looking <laughs> in, but yeah. like, it's definitely been a process. Um, you know, I, here's the thing. If, if you study marketing, if you go get your MBA, you know, they're going to tell you that you know, there are all these amazing techniques you can use to drive traffic, convert sales online and all this stuff. But any good marketing professor is going to tell you still to this day that the very best way to gain customers is through word of mouth. And it probably will be for a long, long time. And that I think is really what has led to Team Red, White and Blue's rapid growth. And, and certainly we use social media and those those things as tools um, but we're not, we're not using them, um, as what's driving the growth. What's driving the growth is somebody gets, um, linked up with their local chapter. They start participating regularly in team red, white, and blue stuff. They start posting on Facebook, all the cool stuff they're doing, wearing their red shirt. Eventually their friends send them a message and say, what is this cult you've joined? Why are you posting about it all the time on, on Facebook? And they say, well, you, let me tell you about it. And they say, Hey, there's one in your area. And those types of, of one-on-one kind of referrals or interactions are the key driver of all of it. Um, you know, certainly people now are able to like go to the Marine Corps Marathon website and like we're a charity partner, I think, and, and things like that. So we have other, you know, things that are gaining people's attention a little bit now. You know, we've you know you're on, we're on the news occasionally and things like that, but. The, the primary driver is is word of mouth and people sharing it with their friends. Well, you know, I, I met a guy back uh, this fall at a, a Go Ruck event, and he had on a team red, white, and blue shirt. And so I immediately went up to him and said, 
hey, I, I listen to their podcast every week. And he wasn't familiar with the podcast, but he had joined Team Red, White, Blue. And by the way, he was from out of town. He was from Michigan. And he was down here for work. And he's like, I know I can, you know, I can do something with a local chapter. And then he also did the Go Rock event. But he joined it because he was recovering from, he was, he was an alcoholic. And I'm not sure what else, he, you know, he was addicted to. But that was something that helped him to overcome that addiction. Well, yeah, I mean, this this is something that is is almost universal. Is that um, whether it's you know depression or something like addiction, it's really important to fill your time with positive things and to fill your life with positive people, and that's the best way to crowd out the things the negative. And I call it, I call it um, exclusion by inclusion, right? Rather than focusing on all the things you don't want to be doing or all the people you don't want to be spending time with, or all the thoughts you don't want to have. Focus on the things that you should be doing. Focus on the people you should be spending time with. And the next thing you know, the, the negative stuff has just been kind of crowded out. You know, you know what I'm saying? And so I think people that are struggling with, whether it's isolation or depression or post-traumatic stress, or whether it's something more acute like addiction, uh, you know, anybody like in a 12-step program will tell you, you know, don't hang around the bar. Don't hang around people that drink, sure, right? Yeah. Hang around people that run and drink water, you know, and invite you to do really positive things on the weekend, like get up at six in the morning to do a go ruck challenge or overnight, you know, those are great ways to stay out of your negative behaviors. So it's, it's not been surprising to me that, that those types of people have really gravitated toward it. Yeah. Well, if you, if you could go back, you know, let's say go back to the route when you came home from your last deployment you know, what could, what would you do differently, Blaine? Ooh, I, or would you? Yeah, see, that's a tricky question because I'm 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 so happy with how things have worked out ultimately that you know to say I would change anything is um, <laughs> is maybe not true. But uh, you know, what I would recommend somebody in my same position to do differently than I did maybe is another way to phrase it. Um, I would not be so eager to just sort of turn the page and disassociate yourself with your military past. You know, I think a lot of people, when they leave the military, they're excited to get out. They're, they're ready for the next chapter. You know, they're happy about not having to deploy anymore and they think everything's going to be great. And I just would take it a little slower. Probably, you know, I would maybe think through your process and say, all right, I'm leaving this, this military community. I'm leaving this, this brotherhood and sisterhood and even if I don't really like it, don't underestimate its power. And so be proactively looking for, you know, what does my next community look like? You know, is it a, is it a CrossFit gym? Is it a, a soccer league? Is it a veterans organization? You know, it, it could be any number of those things or some combination thereof. But this idea that you're just going to, like, take off your uniform for the last time and, like, throw it in the dumpster and then, like, never look back. Like, yeah, I, I tried that and it didn't work out that well for me. I, I probably should have um, stayed in a little closer contact with my military uh, comrades or, or found a, a local organization that allowed me to stay at least a little bit in touch with, with my roots. Hmm. Well, what else? Anything else about uh, maybe for, for people who may be listening that are struggling, uh, veterans or not? I mean, what what would you like to say in closing, Blaine? Yeah, go talk to somebody. And it could be a friend, could be your spouse, could be somebody at the VA, could be, you know, a mentor. Like, you are not alone, not even by a long shot. There are a lot of big barrel-chested freedom fighters out there that are quietly struggling, um, and that's too bad. There's no reason for that, and it breaks my heart every day to know that people are out there just sort of suffering in silence because they don't feel like it's okay to go get some help or they don't deserve help, which is another big one. So what you need to know is that you deserve help. You deserve a supportive, you know, network of people around you and it's okay to ask for it. So whatever, you know, shape that takes for you, I think there are a lot of good avenues you can take, but if, if you don't feel like you're the best version of yourself right now, even if you don't know if it's from your combat experience, go take care of it. You know, whether that's physical activity, um, you know, talking to a psychologist or a counselor, all of it's good. So go do it. And even if you're not a veteran, you know, 
Working yeah. on yourself is a great investment. So, you know, if you're not feeling as well as you want to feel, go do something about it. Like, it's absolutely worth your time and energy, and no one's judging you for doing it. Trust me. Yeah. Go do it. Yeah, I mean, I, if you if how can you take care of others if you don't take care of yourself? Bingo. Well, uh, I I'll have some show notes with Team Red, White, and Blue's website. Uh, what else would you do? You want me to share with the, the people, Blaine? Yeah, you can check all of our stuff is out at teamrwb.org, and we have a weekly podcast with a we cover a ton of this type of subject matter every week. Is called Eagle Nation Podcast, and you can find that on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. I'd recommend that if you want to learn a little bit more about what we're doing. Um, but go find your local chapter and, and see what it's all about. I think uh, I think it'd be worth your time. Yeah, Eagle Nation Podcast. Uh, that's something I was going to say. Is uh, it's you got a lot of listeners. Uh, I'm sure your downloads are growing tremendously every week because it's always on the what's hot in iTunes and has been for many, many, many months. I don't know, maybe close to a year now. Is that right? Or are you about a year old or almost? Almost. I think our first episode, I want to say it was in April of last year, maybe May. So we're getting really close. I think we're 51 episodes in, so it's been it's crazy. Yeah, good. Well, uh, Blaine, I wanted to uh, throw something out there, too. If you're ever looking for something different for as far as exercise, we host a walk in my hometown every year for my brother. Um, what we do is we walk... The, no, the number of miles that represents his age, what he would be this year. So he would be 36 this year in May. So we do a 36 continuous mile walk, kind of like the Tim Davis Memorial Walk. Same, same deal, just a different location and different number of miles. But if you're ever looking for something different, <laughs> yeah, we'd love to have you up there and join us in the, the hills of Northwest Alabama. Uh, that sounds awesome. And also there's a, a Jag 28 CrossFit wad. Uh, named after him, so his is called Jag Two Eight, and it's a killer. Uh, we 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 do I do that at several gyms around the area. So if you ever see the Jag Two Eight, go try to pop out twenty eight strict pull ups twice. It's a it's a dandy one, man. Nice. I have not <laughs> done that one, but I will I will put that immediately on my list of ones to check out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do that. Well, man, it's been uh, a privilege to speak with you. I appreciate your time. I've enjoyed it, and and so. I wish you well with you know your just your family life and your and team red white and blue and the Eagle Nation podcast and all the great stuff you're doing for for so many other people. Yeah, thanks for the time, Thad. I really appreciate you having me on.